Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of the one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and the life for for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's word. So yeah, we're, we're in a series on foundational beliefs of Christianity, so that's why we're talking about this broad subject. And uh, I'm aware that even as I was listening to that scripture being read, it's like, this is thick and complex, and, it's, uh, and it can be a little bit overwhelming. And so hopefully, um, as we move through this, you'll begin to see what uh, the Apostle Paul was saying there in Romans. And also, uh, I hope that you find that there will be some helpful stuff in here, um, and even that you might find yourself going, you know what, um, this belief uh, that Christians have around the idea of sin uh, might actually be helpful, uh, actually might be something worth considering. So uh, as we move toward that, as I said, I'm going to pray a prayer now that's shaped around the Lord's Prayer. This is a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. Interestingly, you never see his disciples pray it exactly, and so I take that to mean that Jesus was giving them a pattern. And so here we're kind of working out of that pattern by praying a prayer shaped by the Lord's prayer for you. So um, if you would join me, uh, I'll pray over us. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. You alone are trustworthy and good. Without you, we fall. We fall short and we fall away from our created purpose. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As war continues to rage in Ukraine, As we've lost friends and loved ones in our lifetimes, yet we see beautiful things in this world. The morning of a community bike ride and the anticipation of playing games with friends here at church remind us that you will make everything new, that wrongs will be made right, that good will prevail. Give us this day our daily bread, for when you were tempted, Lord Jesus, in the desert, you were offered bread without trusting your Father in heaven. Our temptations are the same, and you understand them. Provide us and prove wrong our doubts. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. For when we stray and fail and fall, we feel the need to fix things or run away and hide. What we need is to be seen and loved and forgiven. Forgive us, Lord, so we can forgive our brothers and sisters. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, because evil is so subtle and enticing. It's in the subtleties. We fall back into it so naturally. In your mercy, Lord, lead us out of it. Show us the way. 
Deliver us for your name's sake. For to you is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right, so the doctrine of sin, that's what we're talking about, the, the foundational belief for the doctrine of sin. This is a stumbling block for those in and out of the church. Um, inside the church, uh, briefly, it can be, there can be a temptation to minimize it due to a desire to prove to be free from it, um, or uh, in other situations within the church to overemphasize it um, out of a desire to have people um, you know, please the Lord. And they can, both of those things can happen. In my, one of my childhood former church contexts, there was an emphasis uh, on perfection. And that idea had come from, uh, from Wesley, uh, John Wesley, who was, who was a, a, an excellent uh, leader of the church years ago in England. And he had a desire to please the Lord, and it was a good desire. But the, the kind of tradition that came out of his work began to put a, a higher emphasis on behavior versus motive. And what happened in the church that I was in, uh, in particular, their edition of it, is that they began to be, um, to try, they wanted to, to say that they pleased the Lord, but they also recognized that often they didn't do the right thing. And so what they did was they changed the definition of sin to not being anything that you do wrong, but to when, whenever you do something that you intend to be wrong. If you, you, if they, if you had to intend it. So if you accidentally, um, you know, had a terrible attitude and made somebody feel like trash, um, not a sin, because you didn't mean to. And you can imagine how troublesome that becomes because one person, right, I mean, this pretend situation, one person does that, they make somebody feel like trash, they say, yeah, I didn't mean to, so I didn't do anything wrong. And the person says, well, I still feel like trash, and you did it. Yeah, I didn't mean to. Now, you don't have to be in a church to know how that goes, right? Because that happens in families <laughs> and friendships. And it doesn't help, right? It doesn't help at all. Now, outside of the church or in religions in general, the idea of sin can also be a bit troublesome, a bit of a turnoff. Um, it can be viewed as judgmental or restrictive. When I was younger, I took, I took a girl on a date. I remember this. I was just kind of starting to think about getting into ministry. I, I got into ministry when I was young. Um, and so I, I took this girl out. I didn't know where she was at with God. So I thought I should tell her. I was like, hey, I'm pretty involved in, in Christianity. Um, and what, what about you? Do you? Are you involved in religion at all? And she's like, no. And I said, well, have you ever thought about it? And she said, oh, yeah, I've thought about it. But she's like, I, I know that basically I, I want to I have fun. I want to have fun in my life. And I know that Christianity is going to say I can't do that. And so I'm, I'll look into it later when I'm older, maybe when I have kids. And that's actually a thing I've heard over and over again. It's often people say maybe when I have kids. Um, so there's this idea that the restrictions, um, so it, it's like this, this idea of sin exists within Christianity or within other religions, and people say, I don't want to go in there because I don't want to have to deal with that. Um, so, or, or, or you know, the, if you showed up, that's the other version that people would say, look, if, if I were to accept this definition of sin or some kind of religious um, system, and I were to come around and people were to find out just what I've done, who I am, uh, they'll judge me. And they're, they're going to look down on me and they're going to say, we're better than you and, and we, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to be a part of that, right? Um, so today, though, with the, with the diminishing of religion, um, the, the judgment hasn't gone away. The, the judgment hasn't gone away in our society. Even though religion is down, even though church attendance is down, the judgment 
uh, it, it's still there. It turns out it, it's not just the church, right? Because uh, today you're labeled often, um, though not in the term, a sinner. Uh, you're labeled a sinner online, on, on social media, um, very, very quickly, very easily. And why do I say that? And that, that's because the word sin simply is an old archery term for missing the mark, for, for making a mistake, for being off, uh, for being wrong, for being deviant. So anytime you miss what you should aim for, the word for that would be sin. There's other related words in the Bible. There's a word iniquity, um, and that's like a perversion. That's when you take something good and twist it and use it for evil. Uh, there's another word called transgression. That's when you cross a line and Abby's going to roll her eyes because I tell the story all the time. Um, but my daughter, when she was a kid, we had a great transgression illustration, which was anytime she came to a curb, I told her, if you come to a curb, you always stop and look at me to see if you should go forward. So if, if she crossed the curb, she got in trouble. So I actually had a consequence for crossing the curb because I wanted her to be safe. That's the same kind of idea. A transgression is when there's a line drawn and you're not supposed to cross it. Um, so those, those are the words you see in the Bible, but that word sin, um, you miss the mark, um, it isn't not, it's not just a church idea, right? Um, it's, it's something that we see all around. If you cross the line, if you prove to be perverse, if you miss the mark today, you will be judged. Um, you'll just, it's going to be hard to know whose standard you're going to be judged by at any given moment. A friend of mine in the music industry here in town confessed to me when somebody had been called out on social media. Um, he said, look, we all were sexually active and licentious. Uh, we, we all were doing this. He said, back when I got into, into music, like that was the sign that you were free, that you'd cast off the chains of like the old ways. That was the sign of being free. And now the things we did thinking we were being free are the things people are going to, they're going to wreck our careers. So he said, here's what we do. We're all hiding it now and just hoping nobody finds out what we did, right? So sin is something that is very understood in our culture. It, it exists. The judgment exists. The idea exists. Um, it's just who's whose definition are you going to run into at any given time? It's become a doctrine of the people, of every individual person. Um, so at times like these, it's actually kind of refreshing to consider maybe there's actually one definition. Maybe there's actually one framework that's true. Uh, maybe there's a coherent philosophy anchored in a transcendent God where we know what the boundaries are and we know what we can and can't do, and we know what's right and wrong. It actually might be a gift. So as I work through this, I'm going to show you a little bit of a when, why, how, and where of this belief around sin in the Bible. I'm going to show it to you from Romans 5. When we fell, why we fell, how far, and where are we now? So when we fell, according to the Bible, is that we fell, the human race fell in the person of Adam, who was kind of a representative person over all mankind. Now, that is an idea that's strange to many of us, right? It was definitely, at one point in my life, very strange to me. Here's what Romans 5 says. Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so sin spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin's not counted where there is no law. 
Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of one who was to come. Sin came into the world through one man. Now, if you're paying attention, uh, if you were paying attention when I read Genesis 3 at the beginning, you'd go, wasn't it not a man? Wasn't that a woman? Wasn't that Eve who did that? Uh, Not Adam. And in a sense, uh, yeah, you're right. But the Bible always attributes it to Adam. And that's kind of, a, kind of an interesting fact. And the, most theologians would say something to this effect. Uh, Adam was the one that God earlier had directly spoken to and said, Here, here's what you do. Here's what you do and don't do. And, it, and because he had been given that command, he had a responsibility to enter into this situation between his wife and a tempter and to help to be involved. Uh, there's, a, there's kind of a Christian psychologist, Dr. Larry Crabb, and he has a book called Men of Courage, and he sees this as, a, as kind of a, a pattern moment that gets repeated over and over where a lot of times men are afraid to enter into chaos and relational complexity. Um, and they, rather than do that, they sit back, and you know what? Um, I've seen a lot of that too, and I've felt a lot of that. I've done it myself. But um, I don't think it's just that. It's, it's also an exhibit of another very biblical principle that is, uh, can be a tough one to swallow. And it's this idea of guilt uh, by association. Because Adam is united with Eve. They are a community. They have a shared life. Uh, he cannot do what he tries to do, which is pass the buck. And, and when you read it in, the, in Genesis, he says, the woman who you gave me, God, she told me to do it, right? And, uh, and he can't do that because they're a community. They have a shared life. It's as, it's as if God's saying, I made you co-responsible in the world, and therefore, you're co-responsible for your sin. And this is a cornerstone uh, idea behind even modern ideas like mandatory reporting. Like if, you're, if you learn about something that, and you're, you're supposed to share it, even if it you know, it's, you're maybe not right in the midst of the situation. You have a responsibility now to enter into this and to deal with it. Or laws around um, being a witness um, or being aware of a crime or, scan, or scandal and not telling anybody. Like, you know, there's the whole thing with, in the news about Clarence Thomas's wife. And this is one of those kind of things. Like, did she, what did she know? Well, there's a co-responsibility idea in there. When you know something, um, you, there's some responsibility in there. And I think we all sense that. On top of that, it affirms that you can carry forward the sins of your family and of other people. Um, this is another one that, that people will, you know, and, and myself too, it would be like, well, just because my parents did that doesn't mean I would do that. But it's a theme that you see coming up over and over again. If you've seen the new Batman, this is a major theme of the Batman, right? It's the sins of your father. Um, and who's going to pay for them, right? And, and how many of us have have grown up to realize the awful fact that not only are we kind of like our parents, but we're actually kind of like our parents in the way we determined that we would never be. This is something that I have felt. It's something I've heard many of you say. Um, we vowed we would never be this way. You, even if you've really fought to, bro- to like break the pattern, there's still this damage that's left in the wake of other people's lives. Um, and the one who reaps it is still responsible because you can't, you can't harm somebody and say, I did that to you because my dad did it to me. 
It doesn't absolve you. You're still responsible. Think about this. We don't know what will happen in Ukraine, but someday there will be a time when some Russian children realize the land that they live on was taken by criminal force and it rightfully belonged to somebody else. It's highly likely that that will happen, right? Um, and who's able to make that wrong right? Their dead parents? No. Whoever inherited the cursed possession, they're the ones that would have to let it go to let it return. That can feel kind of imaginary, but actually right now in our city, in Old Pasqua Village um, over just south of Grant, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a Christian ministry property. You all know about it. It's on Old Pasqua land. There's a bill to give it back to the tribe. Who's going to have to give it up? The people that took it? No. The people who inherited it will have to be the ones that, that say, okay, it goes back to who it was given to. These things actually occur, right? Like this, this stuff comes down into real tangible life. Like sometimes when something was taken illegally, somebody who didn't do it has to take responsibility. And this right, right here in the scripture, you see that seed idea that, that actually somebody can be responsible by association. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about bad religion. Some of you know I, uh, I went to their concert last night. Um, I did a little social media stuff around that. But, but there's a song by Bad Religion. I'll talk about them more in a minute. But there's their number one song. If you look at Apple Music, their number one song. of all They have hundreds and hundreds of songs on Apple Music. The number one song is called Infected. And it, it goes, you and me have a disease. You infect me and I'm affected. Why is it that those lyrics have resonated more than any others in all their catalog? I think there's something to this. We sense it. Even though we fight against it, it's something we sense. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a piece from my own life. My parents were very loving and kind, but they grew up with parents who were overtly racist. Um, my dad pushed against this in many big ways, and my mom as well. My dad developed deep friendships with men of other races. I remember um, observing this as a kid. I can see it in his pictures when he was drafted into Vietnam. His friend group was very diverse. My mom today is, is very convinced of injustices of the past, but when I was younger, in moments of stress or failure, I heard them express some of the most racist things in moments of stress. I did. And, and many times, they would immediately respond with embarrassment. They couldn't believe they just said that, right? But I would be a fool to believe that having grown up in their home with them, with that within them, that none of that shaped me at all. I can tell you it has. I know it has. I've felt it. And I've thought things and done things too. Why? Why? It comes from this idea. We, we inherit things. There are things that we don't just choose. That's how it works. Our ancestors did things and developed attitudes. We are their descendants. We have some guilt by association, and we inherit the ways that they thought and that they acted. And you might say, look, Christians don't believe that. Watch the news. They don't believe it, right? Um, well, they should. Maybe that's what I'm trying to say is they should. Because the Bible that Christians read says so. Because of the fall, we, like Adam, pass the buck. We deny the truth, but we're still guilty. So I'm not too shocked when a Christian denies the, the guilt of their sin. 
though most I know are very humble people. I'm not shocked, though, because the tendency when sin is exposed, what did, what did Adam and Eve do? They did not say, I did it. God, look at me. Let's talk. They hid. In our day, too, the, the, uh, like the origin of sin strikes at our deeply held value of individual responsibility. Um, how can I be held to account for things other people do? And I know I, I brought up racism, and that can feel like targeted um, at a certain group. But let me be clear, this is an accountability, accountability issue that isn't restricted to any category of wrongdoing at all. No one is exempt from this idea. Um, the Bible, though, harmonizes the things we struggle to harmonize. It says we are two things. We are co-responsible because we are a community, but it also says we are individually responsible. It says both. It doesn't say one or the other. In Romans 5, you're going to see that sin came through one man, it says, but then it says it spread to all, but why? Because all sinned. So it says this one man started it, but have you ever found someone who stopped it? I haven't. And the curse is not the same for Adam and Eve. It's different. They receive like these, these impacts of their sin, but it's not the same. So you see they're, they're communally responsible, but there's also an individual layer that the Bible harmonizes the two. If we could hold these things together, I think we could take individual and community responsibility, and it would be a powerful thing. Mike brought up another good point this week as we were planning this. Um, he was saying, look, you know, it's not just that people um, struggle with uh, the ideas of being, you know, on the hook for something somebody else did, but also there's, there's a belief that you're born as a blank canvas at birth. There's that idea. But the, here's the thing, that's, that's really not any better. Um, it's really not any more helpful, and I, I want to tell you why, because, um, look, maybe you're having a tough time with this, but... If you were born as a blank canvas, you aren't any less responsible, you're more responsible. Because that means every single bit of it is your fault. And that means there is no more factoring in your parents or corporations or the state of the world, and there's no more self-compassion. It's your fault. Like, that isn't helpful. It's actually helpful to see that some of the ways I feel like outside things are impacting me, that's actually true. It's actually not all my fault, but I still am responsible. This balance is actually very helpful. Okay, so that's the win in the Bible. Our ancient ancestors fell into temptation. We've been living it out of it ever since, which, by the way, is great news. Did you, did you see that little, little twist coming? This is great news. Why? If sin could come into the world through one man, then it is possible that one man could save the world. Think about that for a second. Okay, that's when. Here's why we fell. Um, I can understand the sense that people have about God as judgmental. When you look in Genesis 3 or Romans 5, outside of the big picture of the Bible, I can understand the sense that, like, why is there all this talk about sin, and why are there judgments? Like, why would God do this? Why, why bother? But when it's part of the entire Bible narrative, things become so much more clear. Even in this series that we're doing here in the church, we began with a foundational belief of a God who reveals himself intentionally to those he created. We said, 
The foundational belief of Christianity is that God actually reveals himself. That's key because it's not a God who's just like distant and saying, hey, come look for me. It's a God who's present and saying, here is who I am. And that's, that's a foundation. It's like the foundation below the foundations. And then you say, so what has that God said? And that God has said that he created all things, including us. And that God, as, as John talked about last week, has declared his loving intent and goodwill toward us. And it's in that context that the temptation becomes even more poignant. When you think about the temptation, God had given them directives as to what they could eat and what they could experience. And it was, it was almost everything was free for them to enjoy. They'd been given a calling to go out into the world and do their work. They had been given relationship and community. The garden was something of a temple where they could actually come and know God personally and intimately. They'd been given all these things, and one thing they were told, this is off limits to you. And this, because of that, because of all of the goodwill, because of all of the gifts that God had given, for them to not trust him on this one little detail is, is huge, and it becomes, you start to see this temptation that they hear from this serpent, however that works, right, it is not just like to have something that they want. It's about trust and relationship with the God who has given them every good thing. The question below it is, what do you entrust your heart to the most? What do you entrust your heart to the most? I was trying to think of something that could get me to feel this, okay? I try to think this way sometimes. And I was thinking of like, I was trying to think of a movie where you were like, no, don't listen to that guy or something. And you probably could think of one. I, I did think of one. Um, there might be a better one out there somewhere. But it's the movie Breach. This is one of my favorite movies. But there's, this movie is a tense, it's like a slow-moving tension movie. Has anybody ever seen Breach? No? It's about the, the greatest, uh, it's a true story, um, about the, the largest kind of mole situation in our FBI, where, where you know, information and lives were lost, information was leaked um, for money, um, and there's an FBI agent named Robert Hansen, and he actually was, when they were trying to find who the mole within the FBI was, they picked their best agent to try to find the mole, and they picked him. Right? And so he led the whole investigation trying to find himself. Um, and then, of course, it failed. Right? And so then they, they brought in this young agent who was kind of unknown, who they saw some promise in. And he is told by the FBI director um, that he's just going to watch this person uh, because they, they watch inappropriate things on their, on their computer. And he's going to watch, he has to log every move. And as he gets like to know this guy, he starts to see the guy as he goes to church, he prays, he loves his, his dog, his children, his grandchildren. And he starts to like argue with the FBI director and say, there's nothing wrong with this guy. Like, why am I doing this? Why am I wasting my time? And she is trying to keep him in play, right? And say, trust me. And then eventually she brings him into this situation room where he realizes like the whole wing of the FBI that he works in was built just to catch this guy. 
it was a fake wing of the FBI. Like they had to go that far to fool this guy. And he, re- he kind of gets the zoom out view of like what's really going on. But you can feel in that movie because you, the, the one watching it, know the truth. And you watch him teetering back and forth between believing the traitor versus believing the one who's telling him the truth. And you're like, no, no, don't, don't, don't fall for it, right? That's the feeling you should have when you read about the fall and you read about the temptation. It's not just like, God doesn't want this guy to have fun. It's like, you should be feeling like, why in the world would you listen to that when you have all of this? When that person has dark and selfish intent. And by the way, when they caught this guy and they were trying to figure out his motive, his motive was simply, it was satisfying to me. That was, they were like, did you need the money? No. It was just so satisfying. How similar a temptation he was under, right? So this is why the Bible doesn't pitch God as on a judgment mission. He's on a mission to save back people who have been fooled by a traitor. God's heart is inclined toward mercy and restoration. So we fall, we fell, and keep falling because we're tempted to distrust a good God and trust a traitor um, who just wants to be self-satisfied. So how far have we fell? Um, Our scripture this evening says it over and over. Um, We fell into death. Death came through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, which included death. One trespass, it says later, led to condemnation for all. Um, And then later it says the one man's disobedience by by which many were made sinners. Um, you know, one of the key components to, that, that keeps people coming back to religion is the idea that there's more to life than this, um, that our brief lives on this planet aren't all there is, and that death isn't the end of the story. And, and part of that is because we, we want to live. We want a reason. We want hope. We want to believe that things that we experience in this life, like love and joy and happiness, aren't just these transient, meaningless things, but they might actually go on. But that is always countered by this sense that that there's so deep a dissatisfaction with our lives. There's so much toil and pain and failure and loss. And this is a tension that people live with. I I want life to go on. I want there to be hope, but it's always so daggone miserable, right? So here's what happened with bad religion. Um, I did not get to meet the band. Um, I own a store. And they came into the store, but I wasn't there. So I missed it. I know, I know. Um, But interestingly, they came in because their rock and roll tour manager sells us a spice called Desert Dust. It's delicious. I didn't know he was their tour manager. Um, But the spice is great. I put it on eggs and other things. It's awesome. You should try it. But their tour manager brings in the band, and then I texted him, thanked him for his delivery, and was like, man, I'm really bummed I missed you guys. And he said, do you want to come to the show tonight? Uh, I'll put you on the guest list. So um, Abby got to go. She got to go see her first uh, major cussing band, um, which is always a pretty big move for a teenager. Um, So there you go. That happened. Um, 
But, uh, but of course, I, I see, I, I did not grow up on bad religion. I, I, friends of mine were into punk rock. I was a hip hop kid. Um, but, you know, I'm aware that they're huge, right? And that they've been around for a long time. So I did what I, what I always do in moments like this. And I went completely down the rabbit hole. And I started reading about the band and reading lyrics and all this stuff and like, who are they? And one of the big things I came across is that they're not as anti-religion as they come across. Um, in fact, the lead singer, Greg Graffin, was interviewed for an atheism story, and he said they were severely disappointed because he's actually not a devoted atheist at all. Um, and one of the band members is actually a theist, and another one is actually in a religion, though he didn't name it. Um, so despite their name, they're, you know, they came up with it when they were 15 years old, I guess. Um, and they kind of, for branding's sake, probably stuck with it. But they, they definitely question a lot of things, right? They definitely push back and they question um, a lot of things. But this sense that there's so much pain and toil and trouble, it, it can meld with this sense that we want to live for more. And I want to show, show it to you in one of their songs. It's this on Apple Music their third most popular song, okay? Sorrow. The video uh, for this song opens up with uh, the lead singer looking up to what would appear up to the sky, up to heaven, and he says, Father, will you guide me now? Um, and he goes on, I'm skipping just a, a line or two, but he says, for I can't see a reason for the suffering and this long misery. What if every living soul could be upright and strong? Well, then I do imagine there will be sorrow. There will be sorrow. And then this little line comes in. There will be sorrow no more. It's, oh my gosh, it's good. Um, and then he says, when all the soldiers lay their weapons down, when all, when all the kings and queens relinquish their crowns, when the only true Messiah rescues us from ourselves, it's easy to imagine there will be sorrow. There will be sorrow. There will be sorrow no more. Whoa, that's huge. Even those, I'm not saying he's a Christian. He, he, pretty, he says he isn't, right? But even those critical of religion to some degree said, can say it shouldn't be this way and they can hope for a day when there will be sorrow no more. Isn't that incredible? And by the way, this song like changed the whole, the, the Rialto was sold out. And people were, there's mosh pit and all this stuff going on. When this song came on, the like thrashing stuff died. And people started like pumping fists, hands to the sky. The two older dudes next to me, one of them was just pounding on the edge of the balcony. I'm serious. No sorrow, no more. You know, and then the guy next to him was grabbing at his chest like yelling this out, there will be sorrow no more. It's evident that everyone in the Rialto Theater loved that hope, right? Everyone loved that hope. And by the way, what, what's the deal? When I looked at their top three songs, this is, this is a group that's known for being irreligious. The first song is about how we're infected with a disease and we affect one another. The third song, so the first one's about sin. The third one is about hope and restoration. There will be sorrow no more. Their second most popular song is about Jesus. About a misconstrual of Jesus. But the top three songs of their catalog, Sin, Redemption, Jesus. 
That's just because people listened to those. But people picked those. A good definition of sin, according to a theologian, Cornelius Platinga, that I really appreciate, is simply this. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And we sense it. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. I was at Abby's softball game the other day. Honestly, it was one of my favorite games I've been to. I had a great conversation with one of the other dads about uh, basketball and the Chicago Cubs, which if you know me, you know this is like, I was like firing on on all cylinders. I relaced my old glove at the game successfully. The sun was out. It was beautiful. Um, Abby got to play in the game for the first time. It's all good. And then here come the text messages that someone is defrauding our store on our online marketplace, right? Um, That's still not resolved, by the way, because apparently Square isn't open all weekend. But don't you hate when this stuff invades, right? It blows my mind. And I know this, that thousands, if not millions of people are spending their time right now stealing credit card info, typically from senior citizens or children. You can go listen to videos of calls, long calls with children, where they figure out their kids and get all of their payment info and just start using it. And then they come to stores like ours and spend all their money on a gift card that they cancel immediately and ask you to make a return so that then they get all the money and you can't trace it. Millions of people work on this stuff. There are office complexes full of people doing this. And here I am watching a softball game and chaos comes rolling into my life and they start trying to grab that money right out of my bank account. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Right? You all have stories like this. I guarantee every one of you, if you dug just for a second, maybe back to this morning, could come up with something that's just ridiculously, frustratingly wrong with the world. Okay? It's because sin is real. It's because sin is real. So where are we now? Here's what I'm telling you. Um, I'm telling you, what am I trying to say here? Christianity didn't invent the doctrine of sin. It's, it's just obvious. Christianity is going with what's obvious and true. And when God talks about it, he's talking about it in ways that are very complex. He's saying you're individually responsible. There's corporate responsibility. Every single person that works in that office complex is guilty for what every single one of them does, stuff like that. The police that let it happen, the, the organizations that look over it, all of that, everybody's responsible, right? And it's real, and it affects us, and it's deep, and it's not the way that it's supposed to be. So where are we now? So at the beginning, I brought up, if sin can enter through one man, as hard as it can be to accept inherited guilt, it means that one man can save the world. And right at that curse in Genesis 3, at the very beginning of the Bible, comes a promise that one day a child would be born who would crush the head of the serpent and would save the people from their sorrow. And so when bad religion says, when the only true Messiah rescues us from ourselves, it's easy to imagine there will be sorrow no more. That is exactly, actually, textbook what the Bible says. When you read the Bible as a whole and place the foundational beliefs together, you see the Bible is churning with an expectation of a Savior 
and he comes in the most unexpected way. He is not fighting the way that we would fight. He doesn't destroy sin by attacking it, by revolution, by taking its life, by beating it into submission. He absorbs it into himself. You could say our, our sin infects him. It affects him, right? He comes into our situation. And if you believe what, what Jesus' disciples said, and I, I think this is really compelling, actually. So the, the disciple Peter, who walked with Jesus all of his life, after Jesus had been, had been hung on a cross, and then he believed that he'd risen from the dead, he told a, a group of people, a large group of people, he said, this man never sinned. And that's an incredible statement from one of his closest associates. I, I don't know of anybody else that could actually make that claim. And the amazing thing is that, that this document, the, the Bible's documents, Mark, which is probably a, the gospel that Peter, Peter was behind, and his like, accounts of Jesus, there are no accounts. Think about how crazy this is in the ancient world. There are no accounts of people saying they were wrong about Jesus or he's not the kind of man they said he was. There's just no documentation of anyone disputing that stuff. That's surprising. So Peter says, this man never sinned, but he died and he took our sins upon himself. He was infected with our disease, in other words, and what we now inherit instead of the sinful guilt that we deserve, if we trust in Jesus, is we inherit the sinlessness of Jesus. We can inherit the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus went through a temptation that theologians all say was patterned after the temptation that Adam and Eve uh, dealt with in the garden. Right after his baptism, he goes out into the desert and he's tempted to turn, like to, to make bread for himself. He's tempted to have power. He's tempted with all the things that we can sense that we are tempted with. And he stood firm and trusted in God, unlike us. And so now, no matter how much you have sinned, no matter how much you have inherited, no matter how much you have been damaged or how many times you've been tempted, because of his faithfulness, you can be considered righteous before God. That is shocking. That could lead us to great hope and great humility. Think about two things the world could use. Hope and humility. Humility. Because if our freedom from sin, if our claim to righteousness is all because God gave it to us freely in Jesus, then we cannot be morally superior. We can't claim it. We can't act like it, which is why we should not be known for denying our sins, but accepting that they are real and possible, and we should always be willing to look and see if it's true, which means just think about this. If you're a Christian that leans politically left, there's probably some criticism of your point of view that is correct, and you could consider that because your position in being right is not all that you have, you have the righteousness of Christ. If you're a Christian and you lean politically right, by the way, the same would be true, that the people who criticize your point of view are probably sometimes right. And you could listen to that, and you could consider that, 
and you could consider that what you are standing on is not your own point of view being right, but on one thing, the righteousness of Christ. Abby, one more time, did, a, did an amazing poetry project. She's getting beat on this week. Um, but she did, the, she did an amazing poetry project around the Screwtape Letters. And uh, the Screwtape Letters, by the way, is a book C.S. Lewis, a uh, great English uh, literacy professor, um, did. It's, it's awesome. It gets at the subtlety of what temptation really looks like. It's really an ingenious book. Um, but she, she did a, a poem where she blacked out part of the text and like kept a remaining part. And this was what she came up with at the end. You must teach him, we Christians will fail, we Christians sin. And I think that simple little statement is so true. We all need to learn that. And because of Christ, because of what he's given us freely, you don't have to hide your sin anymore. You can come out with it and confess it and deal with it and work on it, and be changed, okay? As a Christian, the righteousness offered to you is Christ's. But in this life, we remain still under a curse of sin, like everybody else. The hymn, the hymn old hymn says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. So there's no place for feeling superior. But on the flip side, there is reason for great hope. In our culture today, I'm saying we believe a doctrine of sin. We pronounce judgment and condemnation, but we have no idea how to redeem and change hearts. That's one of the big things I've, I've wondered and I've looked at is, as, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thankful, honestly, for some of the ways that covered up issues and sins have been brought to the surface. I think some of that is good, but I've thought we don't know what to do with them now. We don't know what to do with people now. But God does. And I'll tell you what, nobody has ever turned from sin because they felt like a piece of garbage. When you feel like a piece of garbage, when you feel contempt and hate, it does not help you. It hardens you. Every time. And you will sin more. It's like, why not? There's some point when you just can conclude in yourself, like, I am garbage then what difference does it make? I've seen it time after time in the lives and hearts of of you people in our church. Like once you get in this rut where you feel like God and everybody else is looking at you and judging you, you are powerless to fight sin. It's like, what difference does it make if I do it again? I'm already the worst, right? But when you see that you are loved when you see that you are forgiven, when you see that God is actually coming for you, pursuing you like God did in the garden with Adam and Eve, where are you? And that when you see he's doing something about it, like in the, in the garden where he sews them clothes and covers them, he is coming, he is covering. When you see that, it can bring you out of the darkness and it can change you and it can give you hope which is why the doctrine of the fall leads us to a table where Jesus serves us himself. He says, my body was broken for you. He says, my blood was shed for the forgiveness of many. The fall is real. 
and we all sense and deal with its effects. But when you see that Jesus bore the curse of death, he was broken, he was murdered, he was discriminated against, he was treated unjustly, he was affected, that he bore it all on the cross for the guilty, then we can actually have hope and our hearts will change. That's the call of Christianity. It's not, here's a doctrine of sin, feel terrible under it. It's here's a doctrine of sin that makes sense of the world. Come and receive the grace of the one who is infected on our behalf. Will you come to him and trust him by faith? If you want to, you can even just cry out, help my unbelief. That's all he requires. And he welcomes you to receive what he has done for you. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. That's what Paul wrote. The free gift is far more abundant than the trespass. The doctrine of sin leads us to good news, and it overwhelms the bad. Come to Jesus, all who hunger and thirst. I'm going to pray right now, and we're going to take a time of silent confession. This is part of our worship as a church. And what we do is just take that time for you to, to think, pray, and just talk to God in whatever way you need to. Maybe there's something that you, uh, maybe there's something you say, I've been hiding this, God. I, I need to talk about it. Um, maybe, maybe you've never really um, considered God in these ways, and you just want to say, would you show, would you show yourself to me? Um, whatever it is, you're going to have two minutes of silence after I pray to just try talking to God. After that, Mike's going to play some music, and then I'm going to come up here and serve the Lord's Supper. Uh, you're welcome to come. If you can say, I believe, I want to believe that Jesus did this for me, you're welcome to come, but don't feel pressure. After that, uh, we have giving in the back all the time, and we kind of conclude our service with dinner, and this time we're playing games. So it's going to be great. So let me pray, and I'll leave this space for you. Father, thanks. Thanks that the good news overwhelms the bad news. Thank you that we can be humbled by the reality of sin in our own lives, by the ways that we carry forward sins that we didn't even start, but also that we can have incredible hope. The fact that we inherit sin means we can inherit your righteousness, and your righteousness is what we long for. We long to be reconnected to you, God. We, we long for the day when there's no more sorrow. We long for the day when all the brokenness is taken away, when the, rights, when the wrongs are made right. And we thank you, God, that you've promised such a day. Give us hope. Most of all, help us to fall in love with what you've done through Jesus. Help us to embrace the cross where sin was, in, was injected in to a sin bearer who loves us. So lead us there now as we pray. Guide our hearts to feast on your grace.